0: How's it going, Bowrush listeners? I'm Travis Doe, your host of the Bowrush Podcast, and you're listening to episode 41. On this episode, we actually brought on Casey Smith to come on to our show and talk about land management on small properties. Now, I'm almost certain that a lot of you have access to properties. Some are very small, some are very large. It it differs between each hunter. But for myself, Scott, and some others, hunting on property that's about 200 acres seems average. And you might be telling yourself, wow, you know, this could have been really helpful earlier this season when we were just getting access to a property. And you know, it's true. This episode would have been great maybe a month or two ago. But it's coming out now because... For myself, I've had one point where I was able to finally have access to new property right in the the beginning of archery season. And the thing is, when I got in there, the very first thought was in my mind, what can I get out of here? This was a few years ago. I've learned since then that there's more advantages, but I never put in perspective that I was looking long-term. I was going in, what can I get right now? This is why we put this episode out now because if that is someone like you, you just got access to property, you need to think about long-term. Don't just look about what kind of meat or what type of deer I can get out of it right this moment. Yes, hunt it if you want but stay reserved so you can think long-term. Let Casey explain some of the things that he had to say because the tips that he shares are really good. I hope you enjoy it. Let's get it started. Hey, Casey, what's going on, man? Going good, man, going good. We appreciate you taking some time and uh, talking with us tonight.
1: Not a problem. Not a problem. It's my pleasure.
2: Main point or the thing we really want to talk about um, is you know land management and really getting quality deer on you know the property specifically you have that 200 acres and how you're doing it kind of you know in that in that normal guy's budget budget of money and time versus you know these the the show hosts that are doing it 24 7 unlimited funds you know trying to accomplish that same thing just through kind of what you're doing and then just talk talk about some hunting stuff you i know you got some some good stories Love, uh, love oh, to hear yeah. some of them.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, I mean, it, the big thing that I try to do, you know, on on my farm is, you know, kind of assess the land and just, you know, figure out how to create the best habitat possible uh, to make deer feel safe and and to keep them fed as much as possible. And, um, you know, in, in the you know the years I've been doing this, I I started hunting when I was in college, so uh, you know. 12, 12 years ago or so. Uh, if, if there's anything that I've learned, it's if you keep them fed and give them as little pressure as possible, you'll have these. That's kind of the the number one thing that I go by. Cause every property's different. Everybody's got different stuff that they you know, as far as terrain and and timber and pasture land and stuff like that. You know, and the, and the, the number one thing that I've found is if you if you pressure them as little as possible and keep them fed, you're good. You're going to have them. So. And that's what I've tried to do at my place. I've got, like you said, I've got 200 acres there, eastern Alabama, uh, not too far from Lake Valley. Um, mm-hmm. And when I got there, to be honest, I I put out trail cameras, and dude, it was it was a month before I even had a picture of a deer. I mean, really? nothing. Oh yeah, it was bad. And you know that area of, um, had a had a bad reputation of, you know, if it's brown, it's down. Yep. Uh, so, I'm so familiar with that. We, uh, <laughs> Yeah, we, we ran into that a little bit where, I mean, literally, if if it was moving through the woods, it was getting shot at. So, um, you know, I was kind of fighting a little bit with that. And, you know, even in that first year that I was there, there was a guy that was uh, close to me that had a little small piece of land. But his piece of land just happened to be sitting in a nice funnel that led straight out of the bedding area of my property. And because of that, I think he wound up shooting by himself, like nine deer, by himself. I mean, it, illegal as anything, you know, and there's nothing I could do about it. I didn't find out until after the fact, and, you know, I couldn't prove it. It was just kind of hearsay, and so it, that, that kind of put a hurt on us in that first year. But what I've done is um, I've really tried to, you know, establish, you know, year-round food sources. So uh, for me, it was, you know, the clovers and uh, that kind of stuff that we've planted and, you know, some of the property— you know, it, it wasn't really susceptible to clover. It, it, it didn't do well. So, um, you know, I planted that in some areas, but then, you know, I've had to kind of turn to other sources. I've tried this year. I actually planted uh, milo for the first time because it was a little more drought tolerant, seeing how that done. And then uh, in the wintertime, you know, just your basic stuff I've gone. And the, the biggest thing for me was trying to do it with as little cost. So, you know, a lot of guys get caught up in, oh, well, you know, food plots are going to cost this much money. And, well, what I did is I went to the the local guys there in Alabama, um, you know, just talking to people and, you know, kind of going to the, the local feed stores and stuff like that. And I got it where I could get a 55-gallon drum of just winter wheat, just regular winter wheat that, like, a farmer would plant mm-hmm. uh, for, like 50, for, like, 50 bucks. I mean, you're talking almost seven bags of winter wheat, you know, 50-pound bags.
2: Oh, wow. Uh, in,
1: in that 50, yeah, for for 50 or 60 bucks. It's and so I was good. able to plant, yeah, I was able to plant a, a really large area, you know, for next to nothing. And obviously wheat's not, you know, the number one most nutritious thing you could plant for deer, but when you have a ton of it, it still offers a lot of nutrition through the wintertime. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, all the way through early spring. And then it seeds out, and then when it seeds out, the turkeys really like it. I've got a big uh, thirteen acre pasture there in the middle of the property, and uh, the, I planted that entire thing in winter wheat, and it cost me like a hundred bucks.
0: You said something about that you sent it, you put or planted it in the center of your property. Is that because you're trying to focus in, trying to keep the deer more in the center and not towards the outer uh, beds where the, your your guy next to him took them?
1: Yep, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So that was one of the things. The other things with you know, me knowing that I had um, pressure on you know all sides of me. I had guys hunting all around me, and I knew I was going to be fighting that. One of the things that I try to do was was center all my food sources in the middle of the property. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, I, I got lucky that my biggest field is is directly in the middle of my property. But then my smaller food plots um, that I got, uh, I, I made sure to put those you know, more to the interior because I don't want to be, you know, drawing deer to the edges and having deer that are, you know, they're on the edges of my property being, you know, you know, having a chance to get shot. I wanted everybody to to feel comfortable feeding in the middle of my property. So all of my food plots and all of my feeders are as, are as close to the middle of my property as possible so that I try to hold the deer there. Um, And I've got on 200 acres, I run three feeders year round. I don't hunt over them. But I keep them full. Um, and, you know, to me, you know, even though corn is not as nutritious as, you know, as some other stuff, it, it, it does hold deer there, especially in the wintertime because of the carbs. And, and so I make sure that I keep those feeders full year round. And if you think about it, you know, I've looked at planting corn and I did the math and over the course of the month that corn would actually be producing, you know, ears of corn, the amount of time you'd have to spend and money in the seed and the fertilizer and the the roundup and the tractor time, and diesel fuel and all that, it was cheaper for me to just run three feeders and keep them full than it was actually trying to plant it. Mm
2: -hmm. So, um, you know, that's, that's go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no. So real quick, just, uh, kind of give, um, an idea of what, what you're doing down there. You talked a little bit about the, the, state of deer and the population you know when you first took it over what what's your game plan what are you trying to get to what's what's the end game for for the property
1: so for that piece of property and i'll give you a quick little background on it it was my wife's uh it's in my wife's family uh her grandmother deeded us a portion of it um and so and then i've taken over you know all of it as far as the hunting aspect um, and years ago it was a hunting club um and once once i got there my goal is kind of a five year plan. It was, uh, I took it over, uh, three years ago and I'm looking at least another two and a half to three years out. So maybe even more six years. Um, and I would like to try to get to 2019 before I start harvesting any animals whatsoever. Um, my goal Devotion. Is, is not even, yeah. And it's hard, man. I'm telling you, it's hard because, you know, I run cameras all the time, and I start seeing stuff, and I'm like, oh, you know. but <laughs> my, I know, it's, it's tough. But my goal is, we, we just had a baby boy, and my goal is that in, thank you, when, when he's he's eight weeks old, I want when he's six or seven, and he's finally old enough for, to go into the woods with me, that I've got a piece of property that's established to where I know if we go sit on a food plot in the evening, he's going to see deer. Now, is he going to kill a 150? Probably not, and I really don't care. What I want to make sure is that when he's young and getting into the sport, that he keeps his interest because, you know, the attention span of a young kid is, is short. Yeah. Mm-hmm. By seeing animals, turkeys, deer, you know, whatever it may be, I want my population to be high enough that I can sit on any given food plot in any given evening and know that I'm going to see wildlife. Um now, by, by doing that, um, obviously, I'm going to hold bigger bucks because there's going to be a lot of does there. They're going to have a lot of food. They're going to be safe. And so bigger deer are just naturally going to you know, gravitate to that. Plus, by not shooting deer for at least five years, I know that I'm going to have you know, four, five, and six-year-old bucks that are going to be living on that property. Are you Because I haven't shot them.
0: Are you considering anything about the doe to buck ratio to make sure that you're having a, a quality deer?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, because of the lack of, and I, I run a minimum of five or six cameras on that property year round because I really like to keep an inventory of, you know, what I've got on that property. And actually, it's, as surprising as it is, on that property, based on what I've seen on trail cameras, I've actually got a higher buck population than I do does there's more bucks in that area than there are does based on what I've seen on camera um, so for me on that specific piece of property I don't want to shoot it you know I obviously you know your your perfect ratio is going to be you know two to one something like that maybe you know three to one and and the reason I say that I'm not hunting in the Midwest and I want to see deer so mm-hmm. you know I want to I want to make sure that when I go hunt Could I shoot a bunch of does and make sure that, you know, when the rut's on, that there's going to be, you know, very few does in heat at one time so the bucks have to move? Sure. But that's not really what I'm after there because I know I'm not going to be growing 170-inch deer. What I want to make sure of is that when I go out in the evenings with my family, that they're going to be able to see deer, and we will in turn have big bucks. Now, obviously, I don't want to get anything crazy like, you know, 10 to one. But I would like the population in general to get up before I start shooting does. Now, six or seven years from now, if I see, hey, okay, you know, we, we've we got plenty of does out here. Now I need to start taking a few. Then i got no problem doing that because now at that point I've got older, mature deer that are going to be on the property. Um, but, but what I'm trying to do right now is to make them feel safe. I want every deer out there to be to feel as safe as possible because for years, if they walk through the woods during during deer season, they're getting shot at. So I feel like if I just leave it alone for this short period, of, you know, in, in the long run, four or five years isn't very, you know, very long. I feel like for this short period of time, if I just leave it alone, it'll really make all the deer feel comfortable. They'll have cover. They'll have food. Uh, we'll start growing some older deer. Um, and, and the population will get up to where now, okay, now I can actually start managing it from a ratio standpoint as opposed to, you know, just worrying about how many deer I got on the property.
2: Okay. Uh, essentially, a lot of people, when they have however big their, their acreage is, their lease is, they always have a safe zone. Essentially, you have a 200 acre safe zone right now because you're not hunting it whatsoever. For right, yeah,
1: yeah, for right now, absolutely. That's what I've got. Now, I have an area that once we start hunting it, Is specifically designated as a sanctuary Um, on the southern um, it's about 50 or 60 acres where Mm -hmm. I won't even touch it Um, I've got I've got food plots surrounding it um, so that you know well on three sides I've got food plots surrounding it to where if they leave that area unless they go up a really steep cliff off my property uh, they've got to go through one food source or another Mm -hmm. so um, by doing so, um, I can hunt the, uh, the edges of the property, or excuse me, the edges of the sanctuary um, without really disturbing them. Now, a few years from now, um, you know, that area, I, I've set it up to where I'll be able to put a strategic bow stand or whatever here or there to where during the rut at the end of the season, which is actually kind of cool in Alabama because the, the rut comes at the very end of the year. If I want to punch into that and hunt that sanctuary during the rut, I'll be able to still have a minimal pressure because I went ahead and cut roads in there. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's, I would say, probably the biggest thing that I did to improve that property other than food is, and, and this is the advice I could give to any guy that's getting into it, is talk to people in the local area and find a heavy equipment guy that you can trust and that you can have do work for you. Because everybody that I know that has farms that that are successful, they have a guy that can run a dozer or a track hoe or a big tractor or whatever that could get in and do heavy equipment improvements to the property. And that's what I had. I had a guy that's a friend of mine down there that I've met over the last few years, and he had a dozer over there and cut a bunch of new roads, opened up some food plots. And that right there, just by doing that within a month of, of us opening the property up, we saw more wildlife than we'd ever seen in the previous two years because now the deer had easier access they could move around they had better escape routes the turkeys felt safer uh it opened up to new vegetation i mean just everything that we could have asked for by doing that it, it did so um having a dozer guy is a, is a, a really helpful thing
2: no kidding <laughs> yeah well, you know, backtracking just a little bit, because something I want to make sure we get across is, you know, tell us about you. What, what's your background? Where's your involvement with kind of the hunting industry or, you know, the passion of hunting? Where'd that come from? And what are you doing right now?
1: So I have wanted to hunt my entire life. Uh, I grew up um, fishing, though. My, my dad didn't really have any interest in hunting. Loved, he loved hunting. He just didn't want to do it. He'd rather go fishing. Um, yeah. So I didn't really have any <laughs> access to it as a kid. But I always wanted to, uh, and then when I got to college, um, uh, he's he's my best friend now. He was my best man at my wedding. I met him in uh, summer baseball. I met him, and he took me down to his farm in South Carolina. Well, his place is probably the one of the best examples of what quality deer management over a long period of time will do. He's got a, a thousand acres in the low country South Carolina. Uh, they've been managing it for fifteen years. And anybody that hunts in South Carolina knows a 120-inch buck, 125-inch buck is a really good deer, especially down there. They're Mm -hmm. killing high 130s, low 140s, and seeing deer bigger than that on a regular basis and have been for the last several years. Um, And it's incredible. So, yeah, I mean, that place is a a little piece of heaven. Uh, So, (laughs) by by, by being around him, he's the one that really kind of fueled my interest in hunting and, and showed me from day one that it's not all about um, you know just killing deer it's about growing deer and, and everything that goes into it and so you know obviously my, my love for the outdoors and everything that I'd always done I wanted to do it and then he introduced it to me and you know showed me how to do it the right way and then from there uh, over the last decade it's been you know learning as much as I possibly can to be an, uh, a quality you know hunter not just how many I could kill, but I, you know, I, for me, it's a year round thing. I love the preparation and the, the management as much as I do, if not more than I do actually killing deer. So I, you know, I, I, I wasn't able to do much of it. Um, I played, actually, I played a few years of professional baseball and so, you know, that took up the majority of my time. And really all I was able to do was just get in the woods, you know, during the off season at, you know, friends of mine's properties or whatever. Uh, but then once I got done and actually had the time to, you know, Start getting some property of my own, getting some leases and stuff like that. That's when I really taken to starting to manage properties. And then, you know, just so happened I got lucky and uh, met a beautiful lady that happened to have a, a nice piece of property in her family. So uh, <laughs> was that was that the
0: reason why you asked
1: <laughs> you, yeah. you were taking ahead <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So
2: that worked out pretty well <laughs> Take, take I, I, have the to, I have to
1: give her some credit. She when I, when she met me, she didn't hunt uh, at all. Um, she actually um, invented it and uh, trained horses and stuff. And after uh, we got together, one of the first things we ever did together was go turkey hunting. And she went turkey hunting with me when I didn't know anything about turkey hunting, so it was terrible. <laughs> so I always, I always laughed that that she she put in her dues. Uh, for those first, you know, couple of years when I was trying to figure out what what the heck was going on. And, uh, and now that's, that's our favorite thing to do together is is turkey hunting. She's, she's killed birds in a few different states and, um, you know, was a deer hunt as well. And it's, it's something that as a family, we really enjoy doing now. And now we can't wait to take our, our new son there. So, um, you know, that, that's kind of the background with me. And then, you know, obviously over the last several years, it's been, for me, trying to learn as much as I can. That's anything that I do. I I try to educate myself to, to, you know, and for me, the best way to educate myself was to learn from other guys that were doing it. You know, I can read and stuff like that, but just talking to people and picking up little bits of information from hunters all across the country. You know, I've been lucky enough to hunt in several different states uh, for deer and for turkeys and, you know, talking to guys here and there about what they do and what they had success with and stuff like that is really kind of, you know, help me put a management plan together and and just a a whole hunting philosophy together.
0: So well, one of the things I think um, is a, pretty nice about it is that you actually not just was learning you were implementing from the start, you were trying something instead of, there's so many people that will talk like, well, as long as I know this and when I learned this and when I have the right equipment and when I get the right stuff, then I'll start doing the food plot preparation and doing all the steps. But you just started and you learned it as you went. So you were actually doing better just because you at least put it into action.
1: Right. You know, so I, I kind of got ahead of it. Um, it was one of those things where I saw it from day one. It was, you know, and I, I, I will say this. One of the things that helped me with this whole process is I had other places to hunt. I was a, a member of a club, so I was able to go there and, you know, I could get my, um, you know, my, my thrills from actually being in the woods to hunt and and not touch the piece of property that I own, which, you know, some guys don't have that luxury. They've only got one place. Um, so, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it, when, as a hunter are you looking at you know, instant gratification or are you looking at long term? You know, do I want to pull the trigger on something right now or do I want to have the reward of, you know, killing something that's that's really quality and and have that sense of, of gratification that I put all this time and effort and work into it over these last few years and now it's paid off.
0: Based on what you just said there, maybe kind of throw a, a curveball. See what I did there? No. Um, so <laughs> So... Let's say this was your only property, and knowing that you had the opportunity to go elsewhere and you were able to let this sit and mature, but let's say this was all you had, knowing if that was the case, what would you have done if you had the time and this is the only spot and this is all you could do, how would you have hunted it?
1: The the only thing different that I would have done if that was my only place is I would have shot maybe one doe, um, and then waited on a big buck, and and waited on an old mature deer. And if I didn't see one, then I just don't kill a buck. I put one doe in the freezer for meat, and that'd be it. Okay. Uh, because that's that you know my big thing for hunting is I, I like to eat them, and then I'm waiting oh, on yeah. a trophy. So you know it, if if you know I'm not going to shoot a buck for meat ever. Now, I'll eat them when I shoot them, but I'll never shoot a buck just for meat. I'm gonna I'm always just going to shoot a doe. If I'm going to shoot a, a deer for meat, so the only thing I would have done different is I made a I might have shot a doe per season just to make sure I've got food in the freezer, and that would have been it. And then you know had that that trophy buck come by, then yeah, I'm going to shoot it because that's a big deer. But for me, trying to, to really put in this you know this piece with you know, and I did have somewhere else to hunt. You know, that, that's really the only thing I would have done different. So okay. you know, unless something had walked by, it really would have been the same. Other than maybe one doe getting shot.
0: So you still would have been pretty conservative on your tactics.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I know, Hey, if I shoot three or four deer this year and I only have, you know, eight deer on the whole property, well, next year I'm not going to have anything. Yeah. You know, so you have to, you have to understand, you know, you know, yeah, I can kill them this year, but then next year and then two years out, you really are setting yourself back for two or three seasons before the population can catch back up. Mm-hmm. Because you kill four deer, you know, it, it, you know, you better hope that eat every doe out there got bred and successfully bred, and hope they had twins, and, and now okay, well now if that happened, you've still only got a handful of older deer and like four fawns, mm-hmm. you, know, you know. So now the next the next season, what are you seeing? You're not going to see anything. So yeah, I, I don't think it would have changed much, knowing what that property is, you know, um, and and based on you know the population that was there.
2: Well, you know, talking about how you're managing the property, deer hunting is is, is an absolute passion of yours. Uh, on the flip side of that, turkey hunting is an absolute obsession. So, we were talking about how you were managing, it and you're really managing it as as a turkey property. And what's the what's the value add, or what's the difference managing it for turkey that affects deer versus just managing for deer?
1: So I've done a ton of research um, and. One of the things that I'd seen in a lot of articles and talking to a lot of guys was that if you manage a property for turkeys, that you're doing everything you could possibly do to make the best habitat possible for the birds, which in turn makes the best possible habitat for deer. Mm -hmm. Um, And the one thing that really kind of set me apart was when I started looking at setting up nesting areas and uh, year-round food sources that the turkeys would like, well, in turn, it made great uh, bedding areas for deer. It gave deer year-round food sources. It gave great areas for does to hide fawns in the spring uh, when they when they had fawns. Um, so I, I really tried to focus on the birds, and in turn, it made the deer hunting even better. Um, so, you know, if you just focus on the deer— you're not giving any thought to that extra stuff. And this is just in my personal experience, um, mm-hmm. you know, but if you're focused on turkey, a piece of property has to be healthy in order for there to be a large turkey population. You've got to have minimal predators, um, you've got to have a lot of food, you've got to have covered, you've got to have big hardwoods, you've got to have great roosting trees, you have to have water, and that's the other thing is, you know, you've got to make sure you've got close water sources that are easily accessible, you know, all of those are things that deer need, and then some. So, if mm-hmm. you manage specifically for for birds, do and one of the other things that you know some deer hunters never do that turkey hunters do is control burns. So, one of the things I've got coming up this this uh, next winter is we're going to do a controlled burn on about 20 acres of the property. Uh, by doing that, we're going to introduce a whole lot new um, new undergrowth. Uh, undergrowth, exactly, and open up the property. You get a whole lot more food on there, and you know the turkeys love it, and the deer will benefit as well. You've been,
2: doing, so, you've been doing it for three years. What are what are some of the biggest changes? I mean, you run cameras year-round. So what are those changes that you've seen over the last three years?
1: So the first year I put it out there, I didn't see anything at all. You know, mm-hmm. I, it took me uh, up until the wintertime before I even saw the first deer. Um, in the second year, started seeing some more deer. You know, nothing special. Had a few bucks here, a few does. Still no turkeys. Um, the next year, uh, which would be this past uh, fall, saw a substantial amount of uh, more deer. I mean, just walking around the property, you would see deer sign in places you have never seen it before. Uh, more established trails leading to food plots. Um, and then uh, this past spring, we finally started seeing turkeys, um, mm-hmm. and then not only did we see turkeys, but then we wound up, we found two turkey nests and saw five hens, uh, a couple of jakes, and a gobbler all on the property, on a piece of property that for the previous three years had n- never had any birds on it at all. So, you know, we were really starting to see the payoff this year, and the fact that they were actually nesting on our property was, was really rewarding. My wife joked about me whenever we, we, we first found the nest. And I wanted to go down there and, and and stand there and guard it and make sure no coyotes or raccoons or anything <laughs> like that
0: because
1: <laughs> I was I was so excited they were finally nesting on our property.
2: That's awesome. You know, yeah, uh, so it's
1: that part right there. Just that makes it so worth it. When you see stuff like that, it makes everything you've been doing, you know, it, you know you're doing it the right way, and it makes it 100 percent worth it.
0: Well, being that you're trying to keep it unpressured, how often do you go in and check the cameras?
1: Um, I try to go about twice a month. Oh, um, yeah, I, I go out twice a month, sometimes, you know, once a week. But what I do is I always take the same vehicle. I take my drive, my truck, I drive my truck straight to the feeders and then hop out of the truck, check the camera, hop back in the truck. So it becomes where the animals, you know, just like farmers on tractors and stuff like that, they get used to certain things. So the same vehicle is always coming in. It's always doing the same thing. It's associated with food. The other thing I do is I make sure I go in, in the middle of the day. Uh, You know, when as little animals are going to be up and moving as possible. And by doing that, I feel like I'm pressuring the deer as, as little as I can, you know, because they get used to it.
0: Makes sense. Have you ever thought, I think Scott mentioned this. Maybe a year or so ago. I can't remember what we were talking about, but you brought the subject up. I thought it was pretty interesting. It was about having walking into a property, constantly wearing during the off season with like either motor oil or something on your uh, clothing, just because then if you happen to be out there and you are in somehow you have your vehicle or something, they're used to that smell because you've gone in there with that and you've left it. Scott, what, do you remember when that was? No. Was that you that said it?
1: Um, some, I've, something I've something guys very simple Tell me about that Yeah, mm-hmm. they, they talk about Going and wearing Diesel fuel on their boots Because it smells like Tractors
2: Yeah mm-hmm. I've yeah, heard, heard that I, before I've never heard anyone I, I've heard it a few times And it came up In a conversation um, from a guy who just, he, you know, everyone has that thing that they swear by, right? Whether it's, you know, there's some guys that swear smoking a cigarette in a stand and it doesn't doesn't affect anything. Other guys think, you know, wearing diesel diesel fuel on your shoe. You know, everyone has that thing, which I'd never heard of anyone actually doing it until this one uh, one farmer I was talking to. Um, but, uh, I mean, he, he swears by it, so, I mean, everyone has what they're comfortable with and what gives them a little bit more confidence, you know I guess, because it's what it comes down to.
1: Yeah, well, and it's funny, because you know, I've heard similar stuff, and I've heard the smoking a cigarette, dipping in the stand, you know, whatever. And you know, the thing is, is if you're downwind of a deer, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So, just be, if, you, if you're sitting there in a the stand smoking a cigarette, and a deer walks out in the field 200 yards away, and you shoot the biggest deer of your life with a rifle, you're going to swear that, hey, it's fine smoking a cigarette in the stand. Well, what you don't realize is how many deer that are downwind of you never came in that you might have seen. But you'll swear mm-hmm. because you killed that big deer while you were doing that that they don't care. So
2: <laughs> you know,
1: I, I try to be, yeah. I mean, I try to be as scent conscious as possible, mm-hmm. pay attention to the wind. But we had a conversation, I mean, you talked uh, just a couple days ago mm-hmm. about if you hunt in the South, especially like, you know, where I hunt in South Carolina, and it's flat and it's swamp bottoms. If you want to hunt the wind, good luck. Because if you go sit in the stand, it's going to change to every direction at some point during that hunt. So, <laughs> I, I, you, it's just impossible. So, um, you know, the, the big thing that I try to do is just pay attention to my scent. Spray down, you know, make sure I shower, keep my clothes in the, in the scent wash containers, you know, whatever. And, you know, hope you get lucky. Because a mature buck, I don't care what all you spray down with and all that kind of stuff, you can use a nose jammer.
2: They're in tune. If, if
1: a mature buck, yeah, if he's straight downwind, he's gonna smell you. The question is not whether he's gonna smell you. The question is whether or not what he smells of you is enough to alarm him or not. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think is is funny is is hunters are always like, oh, he's not gonna smell me, or I'm trying to keep him from smelling me. What you're really trying to do is make sure that what he smells doesn't, doesn't alert him. Because nope. I, yeah, I promise you, he's gonna spook. He's gonna smell you.
0: Yeah, I think I read something about with the deer that they have to have, they have three triggers and they have to have at least two triggers to be where they flee. Uh, So a smell becomes cautious, and if they see you, obviously if they smell you and see you, then they're gone. Um, But then there's like the third one is they're deaf; they don't even come near you. Sound? (laughs) (laughs) I guess so. They they they, they hear you.
1: (laughs) Well, it's funny because me me, and we talked about it a couple days ago. You know, like when I went to Kansas, the, the deer don't look up. It, it was the strangest thing. Like I hunted in a fifteen foot ladder stand, and you know in the South, I'm I'm expecting I need to be twenty foot up in great cover. And I'm sitting here in a fifteen foot ladder stand with thirty deer around me inside of fifty yards, and none of them look up. They don't. They don't ever. It, it's it's so weird. Um Whereas it's if not you know real. you know if you're hunting the South, yeah, and you're like I've been thirty foot up in my climber and had a deer walking through the pine looked straight up at me. You know, and I didn't even move. I'm like,
0: how did the hell And they don't you they know they never leave. They just look right at you and keep no. looking and looking. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So you know, deer hunting is that's what makes deer hunting so fun is every farm is different. You know, every every state's different. You know, it's always a challenge. There's always different things that go into it. Um but the, the one of the, the things that I've I try to tell guys and I have had buddies of mine that are like, you know, we don't have this and we don't have the budget is Every little bit that you do helps. So if you say, Well, I don't have the money to do this or that or whatever, okay, that's fine. You don't have to do that. You don't have to go plant a big cornfield and have the prettiest food plots in the world. Do what you can because everything that you do is gonna help. You know, if if you do nothing, you're not doing anything. But you know, even just getting out there and, you know, with with a, a, a pole saw and opening up trails and opening up roads and you know, getting out there with a hand tiller and tilling up a little play. Anything you do will help. And even in places where it's not legal to bait, mm-hmm. put out feeders. If you can oh, run yeah. feeders, if you if you don't have tractors or nothing, if you don't have, you know, you can't do food plots, just feed them. Put out a feeder. It's not that expensive. You fill it up maybe once every month and a half. You get the guys shipped in for the corn just feed them and feed them and feed them and feed them. And that alone will help you haul deer on your property.
2: Is there any products with, you know, whether it's a type of soil or a type of feed or, you know, a product that you used or have been using that has really kind of impacted the, the way you're able to do work on the property or you've got good success out of?
1: Um, there's nothing specific other than the one thing I will say is that if you're going to plant food plots, Make sure that you get soil tests and that you fertilize. Them. Uh, I see a lot of guys that, that overlook that, and you will, you will not get anywhere close to the same production um, or your you know your value for your money that you put in the seed if you don't fertilize the food plot and fertilize them correctly. So it's it's very inexpensive. It's very easy to do. Is to get soil samples and send them off, you know, to the county co-op and, and get your soil tested. And so that way you know exactly what to do to help your food plots grow the best. Um, and so then you're getting the most for your money. Otherwise, you know, you could put all this money into seeds and all this kind of stuff and even fertilize them. But if it's not the right fertilizer or, you know, maybe the, it's really acidic and it needs lime or whatever, you're not going to mm-hmm. get the yield that you need. So that's been one of the things that we've done is gotten soil samples, made sure that we fertilize it. And I need, I need to lime mine coming up this year. Um, to make sure that we're getting the most yield out of our soil
2: so what's the process with that because I, I think you know when you talk about guys who have a, a ton of property and, and do this yearly and have been doing it for a while they understand that uh but what about the guy who has you know 80 acres or 200 acres it's just now starting to think about food plots typically they're going to go out and throw some you know throw and grow or, or just do some basic food plots without doing any of that prep work what's the process right. with pH testing and the prep work before you even even plant that.
1: So to make it really easy, you take a piece of of property, you know, whatever that may be, you know, a a food plot, a shooting lane, whatever you're going to plant, you go out and you take five or six uh, samples. You dig down about five or six inches and get a, a chunk of soil. All right. You do that in four or five to six places in that food plot. You put them all together in a bucket and you stir them up, right? So you get a a pretty good uh, sampling of what the soil is. Yeah. You stir them up and then you take that and put it in a zip, you take just a scoop of that mixture and put it in a gallon Ziploc bag and take it and take that to your um, county co-op. And you can go online and just type in pH samples near me and it'll Mm -hmm. pop up where you can send it off to or ship it or whatever or just drive down however you know if your your farm may be close to it and they'll do the soil samples for you and they'll send you the results in the mail and tell you exactly what you need
0: or uh, you ways, know, least the email
1: them or whatever um, it depends sometimes it's you know a week or so sometimes it could be you know a few weeks so I, I would recommend doing it you know in the winter time after deer season so you have as much time as possible to prepare for the upcoming um, summer and fall
0: do you by chance? No, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was gonna say, based on because you do have the property and you don't have to worry about uh, people going in and out. And do you do mix seasonal uh, seeding? So, so let's say during the summer months you have a certain type of growth, and then as that's dying off, when it gets closer to winter months, a different growth comes in. So it's always constantly having it full.
1: By the way, it's funny you said about worrying about people. That's my number one problem is trespassers. Yep. That's owning a piece of property, that's the the biggest frustration I have. Both um, uh, cattle trespassers and hunters. Uh, I've had problems with cows getting out there multiple times in my neighbor, tree falls on his fence, you know, cows get out. I come back four days later and my food plot's mowed down in the dirt, you know. So I've had to deal with that. Uh, had to deal with guys hunting on the property, you know, so you know, no matter how I many no trespassing signs and fences you put up, you're still gonna have to deal with that. So that's that's an ongoing challenge um but as far as the the seed um i I don't because of cost i don't buy any of the pre-made stuff um i get just the the farm grade um seed and my, my favorite things to plant in the winter are wheat oats and turnips and clover or rape is even cheaper depending on the soil and rape will grow in just about anything so um, it's, it's about a quarter of the cost of, of turnips. So, okay. yeah, and I don't, I don't go, you know, you could get buck forage oats, and they're great. And I know that they've been, you know, genetically um, grown to make sure that they're the best food for the deer. But they're $35 a bag, or, or sometimes close to 40 Or you can get regular, you know, oats that a farmer would plant and they're like $14 a bag. And they grow like crazy, and the deer still eat the heck out of them. So it's one of those things where you, you, you don't want to get caught up in buying the deer-specific food plot stuff. Buy what's inexpensive, and it's still going to grow great, and the deer still going to eat it, and they're still going to get a ton of nutrition out of it. So you say, you know, you save $20 a bag just by not buying the name brand, and it still does really well, just like the wheat. You know, I could go buy the, the winter wheat, it's specifically made for deer that's in the the winter mixes or whatever, and it's really expensive. Or I can buy it by the 55-gallon drum and, you know, save several hundred dollars. Um, but as far as my winter mixes, it's um, oats, wheat, uh, wraith, and clover. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, and then in the spring, uh, one of the things I do for turkeys is I plant shufa in the summer. Um, that is the best possible thing if you're a turkey hunter plant chufa it's incredible um
0: Can you it, say again? it's like turkey chufa
1: chufa mm-hmm. yeah c-h-u-f-a um nwts sells on their website you go to most feed stores will have it um it's a it's a weed basically that grows a nut underground it takes 90 days to mature so you got to make sure you plant it in, you know may june or, or so so that it doesn't get a frost on it for 90 days and what it does is it grows a little nut underground and the turkeys starting in December will come through and dig it up. And if you've got a decent turkey population, it will literally turn your food plot into a moonscape. It'll have bare dirt with little craters all over it. And they will, we, we had one food plot, I put a time-lapse camera on. We had turkeys in that food plot during daylight every 45 minutes for 12 straight hours. Wow. It's it's the most, oh, it's unbelievable. Um <laughs> The, the, oh, it, the turkeys will literally eat it until there's nothing left. Um, so I, I make... Yeah, it's it's incredible. Um, so if you're trying to get turkeys, make sure you plant chufa. It's a little more expensive. It's like $80 a bag, and a bag will do about an acre, but that's all you need. You need, you know, on 200 acres, I've got an acre and a half of chufa planted. And see that. And they destroy so, it. <laughs> oh, they absolutely mow it down. It's, it's awesome. Um, but in the spring... What I what I planted in the springtime, like um, right, this year, I planted um, WGF sorghum or Milo. Milo is kind of the you know the name brand or the the regular. The WGF is the um, the wild game food plot sorghum. Uh, mm-hmm. And the reason I did it is because it's a lot more drought tolerant than corn. Uh, you're not going to get quite the same yield, but turkeys love it, doves love it, deer love it. Um, it's very drought tolerant it's going to grow in just about anything you can broadcast it instead of having to row plant it you know outgrow the weeds and it's cheap um so I, I planted that this year the other thing that i plant is uh brown top millet so like in my big field that i'm going to plant for um in wheat this year i come in, in the spring and plant, plant brown top millet for two reasons one it it brings in the doves like crazy and we always love to do a big dove shoot um, in Alabama, it's, you know, right when it opens, and the doves go crazy over that stuff. The other thing is the turkeys love it. Uh, it provides good cover. It'll provide good cover for the fawns because uh, it's you know it goes up to about waist high. Mm-hmm. Um, the deer the deer will eat it a little bit. The other thing is it keeps the food plots really clean. It grows so fast and so thick that it doesn't let any weeds grow in the, in the food plot. So I do and it's cheap. So I. I plant that in that big field to keep it clean, feed the doves and the turkeys, and then that way when I go to plant my winter food plot, all I got to do is bush hog it, turn it under, and it's ready to go. Wow. Uh, So that's my my favorite stuff to plant uh, springtime. Uh, Now, there's all kinds of stuff. You know, my buddy in South Carolina, um, you know, he'll plant forage soybeans and um, all kinds of stuff, but you're starting to talk about stuff that you can't really do on a limited budget. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I, t- I try to make sure that anything anything that I plant, you could do with a real small tractor and a, a whirlybird or a broadcaster, you know, where, or even if you had an ATV and you wanted to have one of those small plows behind it uh, and a little ATV spreader, you know, you could do everything that I do at my farm, you'd be able to do with that uh, if you wanted to.
2: If someone's just starting to this, you know, this is their first season and they're they're going to dive in and make some food plots and start managing. What's the first step for them? Um,
1: first step is go in and kind of figure out how the property is laid out um, and see, are there any food plots that are, you know, any fields that are already there? Am I going to have to make them? You know, so you got, and then before you start planning, do it strategically. You know, are you planning it near cover are you planting it, you know, way away from where they're bedding, you know, so that you're not going to, you know, have deer sightings during the daytime in those food plots? How close to the nearest water source? That kind of stuff.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, then the next thing you would want to do is once you figure out, okay, this is where we're going to do it, get in, bush hog it, clear it out. Um, and the, the first thing that I would plant in the very first year is, is it's going to be, especially if it's a property that hasn't had anything done, it's going to be overgrown, You're going to have a lot of stick-ups, roots, all that kind of stuff. So I would keep it really simple and just go get a bunch of wheat and maybe some oats. And all you got to do with that stuff is scratch the surface of the ground. You don't have to have a perfectly clean, you know, cultivated food plot. You just need to have bare dirt so you get seed-to-soil contact, and it'll grow. And I've done that, where the first year I went into a property, um, I had a lease several years back when I first started into this that, Nobody had ever done anything there. All it had was logging roads from where they had gone in and um, and timbered the property a few years before. So all I did is I rented a bobcat for a day and came in and just cleared out the debris where we were gonna plant the food plots. Mm-hmm. And then had a buddy of mine bring his tractor over there and scratch the surface of it. And it was a mess. It didn't look good at all. But we flung that, that weed out over the top of it and it grew like crazy, and we had some really nice looking food plots in the first year that we were doing it. Then the next year we came back, well, now the food plots have already been cleaned. All the debris that was there in it, you know, the sticks and all that kind of stuff, has now had a year to rot, um, mm-hmm. and you've already hit it. with, and, and so now when you come back to plow it under, it's a lot better. And that's the same thing we had to deal with at the my, uh, family farm that we've got now. Dude, when I first got there, the fields and the, where the food plots are now – were taller than my truck. I mean, you couldn't drive a truck in them. It was was the thickest, gnarliest mess of briars and trees and everything you could possibly imagine. It was awful. And in the first year, we could only bush hog some of it to get it ready, and the food plots looked ugly. I mean, they were ugly, but we got food in there and started bringing deer in. The next year we came back in, they started getting a little cleaner. We got the dozer in there to clean it up a little bit more. Um, and they looked even better and now uh, the third year going into it now they're starting to look pretty now when you go to plow a field it plows just pure dirt and it's pretty because it's a you know everything's had time to rot and get out of there
0: that just basically so, reiterates you, what you were saying earlier basing just do something and you know start even with the smallest amount you just threw it out there it wasn't pre- or pretty but it worked and every time you've gone back is you've been able to do more and more and more because it allowed you to um, you know, slowly build onto it.
1: Right, and I, I had to learn that the hard way because the first year I went out there, you know, I was telling my boy, I'm like, man, you know, I want this. And he goes, buddy, that's not what's going to happen. He said, your first year, you're not going to have that, you know, TV, you know, Photoshop food plot that you want to have that you see these guys hunting over that's just the prettiest green field you've ever seen. He said, all you want is food. You just want the deer to have food. And the deer have food, they're going to stay, and and you're going to you, you're you're working towards a five or six year plan. And so I had to get over the fact that there were stick-ups and rocks and you know weeds and stuff like that that were in my food plots in that first year. But hey, the deer had food, and and then we just move on to the next year.
0: Would you almost think that based on being that yeah, it wasn't the most prettiest thing, the deer are already used to that area. Now they're seeing food. I'd almost think that they would think, hey, I got cover too. So it almost keeps right. them there because they the feel more don't safe. Care. Yeah,
1: <laughs> right. They don't care how pretty your food plot looks. They just care that there's food and cover.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not cats. Um, excuse me. Right, exactly. <laughs> this is not the way I'm going. Uh, uh-uh. uh.
1: It's like, oh man, he's got he's got some rocks in that food plot. I don't want to eat them. No, I'm not that. eating. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't want my buddies to be you know see me eating over here in this trashy food plot. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, you know, one thing with all our listeners that, that are tuning in, um, we always like giving them a little bit more information on stuff, right? So there's a ton of small companies all throughout the hunting industry, new up and coming products, or maybe stuff that's been around that just doesn't have a ton of exposure. Is there anything that any companies you're kind of, uh, associated with, or, you know, a product that you really use that you love that, uh, maybe n- not enough people know about.
1: Yeah, actually, um, hang 10 tree stands. Um, mm-hmm. and they, uh, they're a new startup. They're out of Dallas, Georgia. Uh, they got started a couple years ago. And um, actually one of the kids that, oh, well, he's not a kid anymore. He just graduated college. But um, the my Sunday school teacher, when I was in high school, his, his son uh, played baseball and trained in my facility, went to Mercer College, and then me and him have hunted together. I uh, actually hog hunted with him and stuff like that. He's one of the other guys on Pro Staff that got me hooked up with him. And they are making, they started out making climbers and their whole deal was they wanted to make a climber that was lightweight, but that was safe uh, um, and it, as safe and as comfortable as possible. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, what they've done is they've kind of reengineered the way a climber grabs on a tree. They've got, if you you know, you think about a summit or a lone wolf or whatever. When you think about the the way the the teeth bite into a tree, you've got a V on the top and a V on the bottom. Well, they came out with a design that's got four points of contact on the top and the bottom. So you have two Vs and at the top and two Vs at the bottom. And I got in this stand, uh, and I think fully loaded with the seat uh, and the straps and everything, stand weighs like 19 pounds maybe. They're made out of uh, hexagonal aluminum tubing, uh, which are, I think the climber's rated to 350 pounds. And I got in this thing on a telephone pole, mind you, in the, the front yard of their shop, and was hanging off the top piece, leaning over the side, and the stand would not budge. Uh, it was incredible. And So I, I, before I even you know thought about being on Pro Staff, you know, I wanted to go over there and check it out. And I would, you, looked at them, and I was like, you guys are on to something here. The other really cool thing that they do is they rhino liner their entire stand. So the entire stand is coated with rhino And That's been one of my biggest complaints as a hunter is, A, the stand gets slippery, especially when it's cold, frosty, rainy, whatever, uh, they get they get slippery uh, and they're noisy. Well, they figured that out by taking that rubberized coating that you would put on the the bed liner of a truck and mm-hmm. just coating their sands in it. And what's really cool is not only are they they you know slip resistant, uh, they don't make any noise, but they can also customize them. So, say you're a, a UGA fan, they can make you a red and black climber, uh, which is it's really cool. The other thing that yeah that they've got is they. Um, They have a a lumbar cushion in the back, uh, and then a, like a sling seat and a padded version. So if you're a, you know, minimalist, you want to have as much room there. They've got a sling seat. They've also got a padded version that's a little bit more comfortable. And me being a big guy, I'm 6'4", 250. Uh, their platform, uh, and their top rail is bigger than the industry standard. So it's, it's, um, it's got a lot more room in there for you to move around. But when it packs down and, and lays together, it's extremely lightweight, extremely portable. And it's really safe. Uh, the other thing that they've done is instead of having the straps adjust on both sides, they've got them anchored in on one side. It's got a, a, a triangle shaped cable, uh, mm-hmm. which makes um, it, it feeding into it and working around the tree really easy. Uh, and then they've designed it to where instead of having to look through and see where the pin is, uh, they have stickers on the on the cable to where you know I need to slot it to this sticker to where this sticker is exactly at the edge of the stand. And I, don't, I can find it in the dark. I don't even have to look at the pin, and I know the pin's going to be lined up with the, the catch at the bottom. The other thing is the pin um, is is self, it's, uh, self-catching. So when you push it through, it, you release the top of it, and it sets mm-hmm. in there. And the only way to, to pull it out is you have to press in the top and then pull it out so it, it doesn't have, uh, like, the regular C-clamp that you would see on, like, a ladder stand or something like that. So it saves on noise. Uh, stays on time and they, so they really approach it on, you know, how can I make this efficient for a hunter in the dark? So it's easy, it's fast, it doesn't make any noise, so you're as stealth as possible, and it's as safe as possible. They've also gone in and started making lock ons that they just, uh, introduced this year. Same kind of concept. It's that hexagonal aluminum. So they're really safe, they're really strong, and they're, they're making a really good product, man. They're all, everything they do is made there in the USA. Uh, they manufacture everything. I mean, do all the welding and all their stuff. Uh, right there in their little shop in uh, in Dallas, and I, I think they're they're going to really start uh, putting out some highly, high high uh, high quality products, uh, which they already are. But they're going to start taking on the market here pretty shortly once people find out about them. So uh, check them out at Tang Ten Street stands. They're on Facebook and Instagram uh,
2: and online, all that kind of stuff. Nice, that's awesome. Very cool. Um, Travis, you got anything else?
0: Yeah, actually, I do. Because you were saying that you are having to deal with the the surrounding properties. What kind of steps are you taking? I mean, how are you dealing with them, I guess, in a reasonable, responsible way? Or obviously, you can't really control everything, single thing that happens if the cow gets out because there's only so much you can do. But what have you done to try to take steps to uh, ensure that nothing's happening on your property?
1: So I'm glad you asked me that. The, The first thing that I did when I first started hunting up there is I found out who everybody that owned land or hunted around me was. I knocked on doors, I made phone calls, got phone numbers from guys that lived there, something like that, and I reached out to everybody and said, hey, you know, this is who I am, this is where I'm, you know, I'm going to be, this is what I'm going to be doing, and then I told them what my management plan was. Hey, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to grow the deer population, I'm trying to grow bigger deer you know, hey, you as a hunter, I know you want to shoot bigger deer, too, and didn't say, hey, you better not shoot anything. It was, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. Would love for you guys to be on the same page so that we can all benefit from this. Um, So, you know, instead of trying to take the negative side of, hey, you guys better not shoot any young deer, it was, would love it if you guys would get on the same page with me so that, you know, a few years from now, we can all be shooting big deer, you know, that we're sharing amongst our properties. Because if we've got you know, a thousand acres or 2000 acres that we're managing versus 200, you know, it'll, it'll benefit it even more. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. And I've got the guys that are next to me have bought in. They, uh, the guy that killed all those deer, um, the landowner, that guy was leasing it. He actually kicked him out and won't let anybody hunt that property now because he knows what I'm trying to do. He's trying to kill bigger deer too. And he said, no, I'm not dealing with that anymore. So he kicked that guy off his lease. And, um, you know, I, when the cows get out, you know, I'm, I always try to be as friendly as possible because the last thing you ever want to do is have a negative relationship with somebody that you're a neighbor to. So, you know, I try to help them out and get their, yeah, get their, get their cows back. Um, you know, hey, is there anything I can do for you guys? Help you fix the fence, whatever. Because as long as you're friendly with people and you let them know what you're trying to do, you know, I, most people, not all people, but most people will respond well. Every once in a while, you'll run across a guy that's just a turd, and you know you can't deal with. But for the most part, people are reasonable, especially you know farmers and other hunters.
0: That's cool. Yeah, going out there reaching them. Now, that's one thing. You were next to farmers, so you had the ability to call and contact. How did you find? Let's say there was a property near you, but there wasn't a farm, there wasn't a house, there was no way of actually just reaching and knocking on the door what did you do? How did you find out who they were, who owned it, or managed it? Like, what were those steps? Because that's kind of important um, as we drive around. There's tons of land, but just, you don't really know who owns it or how even to find out who gets to type. Talking
1: to people. Just talking
0: uh, to people. Okay. You'd be
1: surprised. Yeah, you'd be surprised how much locals know. Um, and that's what I did is I talked to the locals. Hey, you know that piece of property up on the northwest corner of me? You know, it's 50 acres or whatever. You know who hunts that? No, but, you know, Bubba down here... He knows somebody that hunts up there and he might be able to tell you. And it just that way, just talking to people and then getting a phone number to a guy and getting another phone number to a guy until I finally found somebody who either owned it or was hunting it or whatever, just being as friendly as possible and talking to as many people as I possibly could.
0: Nice. Okay.
1: The DNR can help too. Mm -hmm. If you call it, if you call the DNR and say, Hey, I've now got access. And that's, that's the other thing is get the DNR on your side because the DNR will help keep people off of you and make sure that the guys around you are doing what they're supposed to. Mm -hmm. So that's why I always try, I try to do stuff as legal as possible so that, you know, I don't have to, you know, if DNR wants to come walk around on my property, Hey, go right ahead, man. I'm not doing anything illegal.
0: What are some of the things that you've made clear to the people that are adjacent to your property? They shot a deer and it runs onto your property do they have to contact you first or are you hoping that they would do that? Or you're like, you know what, if the deer passes through, go ahead and track it down and take it. Like what have the things that you've kind of put in place?
1: So well, one of the things, you know, at first was I told them what I was trying to do. Hey, I'm not going to shoot little deer. If I shoot a doe or if I shoot a deer for me, it's a doe. And then as far as that, you know, if somebody, if they, somebody shoots a deer and it runs onto my place, I'm always going to be, you know, more than happy to, to let them go look for it just let me know first you know and that's that's all i ask is hey you got my phone number you know i'll make sure everybody around me has my phone number and uh, you know if you need to come on my place i'm more than happy to let you go because everybody you know i want to if i shoot one and it runs on their place i want to go find it too so it's just call me and i'll come help you if i can mm-hmm. uh, the one thing i just don't want anybody out there without letting me know first it's like if their cows get out and you know they need to come on my place to come get them Hey, all right. Just make sure you call me first. Don't just go running out there. Yeah. And that's that's really all I put in place is just keep me in the loop with what's going on, so I know who's out there.
0: Smart. Okay. That was a that was probably one of my biggest questions because that's I know Scott's probably having to deal with that with his properties that he has and um, me I've there's just. I have a few spots, and knowing that there's other areas they have no idea what they're dealing with, knowing that you, hey, you've gotten out, you reached out to them, you've made some sort of communication and in your intentions, and this seems like the senses are all the same that they all kind of agree what you what you want, which is great.
2: One one thing yeah, that uh, you- that I started using that really helps, um, and this first season I've really used it, is is uh, Onyx Hunt Maps. It, it, you can you can actually see who owns what parcels and, and pull information based on it. So you're kind of landowners.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I started using that a couple years ago, and I, I forgot to mention that that's that's a really cool tool. But what's funny is for years ever since it came out, probably mm-hmm. my best hunting tool that I've used is Google Earth. Oh yeah, um, and that's the one thing I you know I'll tell um, you know new hunters is you'll learn more about your property. Just getting on Google Earth and just just look at it, you know, and I, I'll I look at my property, I've seen my property 10,000 times and I still go back and look at it. Sometimes I'll find new stuff. And, and it's not necessarily, you know, where a food plot is or something like that, but terrain features.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, you
1: look at, you know, how this ridge funnels this way in this direction and oh, I never really realized that that went in that direction and, you know, just that kind of stuff because... You just start to learn, as crazy as it sounds, about thermals, about the way your wind is going to go down through your property. If you've got hills and stuff like that, you know, in the mornings and the evenings, how the wind's going to behave, where the deer are coming from, what ridges they like to use, start to develop patterns. And then you, you start to plug in, you know, and there's a bunch of, bunch of apps for it and, and all that stuff, but you start to plug in deer sightings, you know, deer kills, turkey sightings, turkey kills. And you do it throughout the year, and you, you start, start putting plugging those together. into your maps. Yeah, and you can start to see what's going on. I mean, you put a couple years worth of data of what you've seen, you know, all throughout the year. You can see where the deer tend to hang out at this time of the year versus this time of the year. Like, and you start to see all that play out. I mean, it's really cool.
2: Is there an app that you use uh, for mapping stuff like that? Is there one specifically that you're aware of? Uh, or-
1: yeah, I use uh, Hunt Stand. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Hunt Stand, and it actually it's cool because it shows like, you know, you'll use like the weather data and show you like the wind direction for your specific stand.
0: Mm-hmm. I like uh, I've got, it. I've got Onyx Hunt. The uh, that Hunt Stand one to me it just seems very um, complicated. It's almost it is it's, every time you click it on is. one thing if you don't hit the right button you're almost stuck in whatever field it's structured in and you, yeah. you that's the only one part. I wish it was a little bit more user friendly, but overall, it's it's yeah. a really nice app.
1: The the way it's set up, as far as you know what you're trying to accomplish with it, is great. But the ease of use is definitely uh, the least going to be desired for yeah.
2: sure. Yeah,
1: <laughs> um, it's not very user friendly at all. I've also got the Whitetail Freaks Property Manager. Um, I'm looking on here. I've got like the Deer Lab Extension Deer Food Plot. I mean, I downloaded it plus <laughs> them. You know, I got, I got, you know, if I see a new app, I'm going to try it out. So I got all kinds of stuff on here. Uh, but, you know, I use the hunt stand and Google Earth. And then, you know, I use like the moon tables and stuff like that as well. And then you start correlating that with trail camera data and, you know, all that stuff. I got more information I need.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you have a command center on your iPhone.
1: I know, man, it's crazy. It's like all this. is, I'm just trying to shoot a deer. Like, really?
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's awesome well man you know we really appreciate you coming on take some time um you know we'd love to check in with you throughout the season and you know end of the season kind of see what you're seeing on that property and you know how your how your hunts went i know you have uh multiple multiple states to go try and kill uh turkeys and deer in this year so we'd love to check in with
1: you i really enjoy talking to you guys man i can as you can tell i can talk hunting you know forever and i'm probably going to hang up the phone and realize that i forgot to say about 15 different things but
0: No, that's Um, okay.
2: (laughs) We can, we'll, we'll get back on. We'll talk again. Absolutely.
1: Oh, I do know. now that I thought about that, one of the things that I completely forgot, and it's, it's something that's extremely important to management that some people forget. And it's very cheap and easy to do is mineral sites is establishing mineral sites, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, near a water source, um, from antler growth and just overall deer herd health, having established mineral sites on that property. And I have, um, three set up on my 200 acres. Um, That's so important because, number one, it's a great way to get pictures of deer, especially early season. And, two, the nutrition that they're going to get out of it uh, is is awesome. So, you know, you don't have to do anything crazy. Um, And I even use – I'll take one of those salt blocks that you can get at Tractor Supply for cows. Mm -hmm. and. Because nutritionally, it's almost the same thing as like a trophy rock, but it's a third the price. They're dirt cheap. You can get one like like five bucks. Oh, wow. um,
2: Really? Yeah. That's and
0: I'll just, a, that's yo, a cool yeah, tip.
1: They're, they're dirt cheap. So yeah, because those, uh,
0: those trophy rocks, those are like 17 bucks a pop.
1: Yeah, they're crazy. So it, you're, you're wanting to get the sodium and the calcium and all the stuff that's in there. If you look at the ingredients in those salt blocks, yeah, they're mostly sodium, but they've still got those other nutrients because guess what? A cow and a deer, they ain't that different. You know, so no. they need the same type of stuff. So if a farmer is given a cow or a horse a salt block to get the nutrients and the minerals that they need, a deer needs the same thing. So you take one, of, and I learned that from my buddy in South Carolina because he puts out a bunch of And, you know, you start spending $17 a trophy rock, that gets expensive quick. Real so quick. Yeah, five, eight bucks, and if you look at those salt blocks that they got a trailer spot, they're like four times bigger than a trophy rock. They're huge. <laughs> so what? What I did is I go dig a little hole, you know, just a little, you know, mineral lick area. Stick that block in there, and then I'd take a um, uh, a jug of like the deer cocaine or any of those liquid minerals,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: I'd soak the top of that thing and the dirt around it with them to get them interested in it and then swing mm-hmm. out a little corn around it just to, you know, to bring them to it. And man, they, they absolutely destroy those, those cattle salt lakes and their dirt cheap. So for a budget guy that, that you still want to do it the right way, that is, that is a great tool right there. Um, is to go get one of those
2: attractor try to supply and put you a couple of those out there. That's awesome. Good, good information.
0: Oh yeah. Well, yeah, cool. you so, pretty much answered uh, a lot of my questions and,
2: um, I'll, I'll I'll have a million more, so you know. <laughs> I said when I say well, you know, I'll, love to have you know, back on? It's
0: true. Yeah, absolutely, guys.
1: Anytime you know, anytime you want me back on, I'd be more than happy. Uh, love talking to you guys. Let's talk about hunt. You know, we can have a lot more discussions about archery and shooting, and you know, any anything that that uh, involves with that. I got uh, all kinds of stuff that, that I love to talk about. So, and I've got luckily I've got people that are around me that are experts in all those fields. So I've been able to. Pick up information from all those guys, and um, you know love talking about that stuff. So uh, it was a pleasure being on here, guys. And uh, like I said, anytime you want to have me back, i would be more than happy to talk
2: to you. Uh, phenomenal! We, we look forward to it, Casey. Yeah, appreciate it, guys. Thank hey, you. Anytime, talk to you.
0: Well, that seems to be it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed and learned some really cool things that Casey had to say. You know, land management is something is still new to me. I know it's new to Scott, and we're trying to apply some of the knowledge that we've learned over the years. Most of the time, we've always been hunting WMAs or properties that we didn't really have full control over. Scott was lucky enough to get access to land that, and he was able to put his name on a lease and start planning and doing things. And the things we've learned over the years and apply it, So it's going to be interesting to see how that comes about. But uh, if you enjoyed this episode, I'd appreciate it. It would mean a lot to us if you can go to our iTunes account and give us a review. How you get to it is going to mybowrush.com forward slash iTunes. You can also follow us on all our social accounts by just going to mybowrush.com forward slash follow us seems simple enough, but it lets you know exactly how to find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and a few others. Go to those social accounts, like us, follow us, and help us out. We're trying to branch out, get more involved into the social communities, but we need your help. So if you could take the time, say, Hey, and if you have already had success in the woods, come to the social accounts and show us your photos, tell us your story. We'd love to hear it. I think that's it. Uh, stay tuned till the next episode. But until then, I'm Travis Stowe, your host of the Boers podcast. I'm out of here.